the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton Engineering and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. And I, I got to let you know, it's kind of an ordeal. I try to put things back the way they were before I started. He's been very gracious and generous. And I appreciate it, Dan Rice. Well, today on the program, we've got a couple of impressive interviews. We're going to hear from J. Scott Turner. Mr. Turner is the author of Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. The book is published by Harper One, and we'll talk with him about that in the latter part of this hour. Next hour, we're going to hear from Tom Halliday. He is the author of Putting It Together Again, When It's All Fallen Apart, Seven Principles, for rebuilding your life. I know none of us can relate to that as things have sort of crumbled around us in terms of routine and expectation. Well, Tom Holliday is going to talk with us about putting it all back together again. Uh, the book is published by Zondervan, and he'll join us in the latter part of the second hour of today's program. Meanwhile, we'll take a look at some of the, uh, the day's headlines and try to put things into some perspective. Well, President Biden today will sign three executive orders on illegal and legal immigration as part of an aggressive push in the early days of his presidency to roll back many of uh, President Trump's policies. Now, one of those orders is going to create a task force to push forward with the reunification of migrants who were separated from family members at the border during the Trump administration via the zero tolerance policy. Now, I say he will sign those documents at the time that we're recording this program. It's yet in the future. That may have been done uh, by the time you're hearing this broadcast. Well, that policy stopped the practice of adults being admitted to the United States when claiming asylum if they were accompanied by a child. We learned that oftentimes the adult had no relationship to the child at all. Well, due to court orders preventing minors being held in detention for more than a few weeks, it meant that children were placed in care or transferred to relatives in the United States while parents or guardians were deported. Well, the Trump administration eventually reversed the policy with some backlash and migrant activists have been calling for those who were removed to be allowed back in to be reunited and even given green cards as compensation, as if it were an entitlement. Well, a senior administration official told reporters that the task force recommendations would take into account the menu of options that exist under the immigration uh, policy and the appropriate issue issuance of visas or other immigration benefits. Well, the new task force is going to work to find out uh, uh, who it, these individuals were who were separated, make some recommendations to the president and other agencies regarding steps that can, should, or will be taken. It was mo a moral failure and a national shame for the prior administration that they used family separation as a weapon against desperate families and children. That's a quote from a senior administration official commenting on the policy under the previous administration. Well, another order will um, implement a three-part strategy to address irregular migration at the uh, southern border. It includes the development of a strategy to tackle the instability and other factors that drive migrants north and collaboration with other countries. Another rather um, 
shocking news, I suppose, while opponents of the long controversial Keystone XL pipeline cheered its cancellation by uh, President Biden's administration. Others like Nebraska, New Mexico, uh, they hold the opposite position. One uh, Nebraska truck driver, Chris Olson, he shook his head in dismay, saying this, any of these people that work on the pipeline, all of a sudden they're not making money, so they're not spending money. So the community that they live in is going to have less money coming in. Well, on his first day in office, uh, President Biden signed an executive order revoking federal permits for the project, which would bring heavy Canadian crude from Alberta the tar sands there through Montana and South Dakota to link up with existing pipelines at Steel City, Nebraska. Now that means there won't be vehicles transporting uh, that um, oil from one location to the other. It was supposed to be environmentally friendly by uh, a significant amount. Well, the executive order reads in part, leaving the Keystone XL pipeline permit in place would not be consistent with the administration's economic and climate imperatives. Well, the president's decision reversed a 2017 executive order by former President Donald Trump that earned the United States energy independence, which itself reversed an Obama administration decision blocking the project that began in 2008. Well, Olson is a truck driver from Crete, Nebraska, with nearly 7,000 people. The town southwest of Lincoln is home to nearly half the population of Saline County, through which the pipeline route ran. Olson says people in the area are used to having their needs overlooked by Washington. It's flyover country. That's what they call us, he said. It's like we don't even exist. Well, TC Energy Corporation, which is the Canadian company pushing the project, said the abrupt cancellation after more than a decade of negotiations will directly lead to layoffs of thousands of union workers and negatively impact groundbreaking industry commitments to use new renewable energy as well as historic uh, equity partnerships with indigenous communities, end quote. Well, in Dorchester, Nebraska, which is a tiny town, population 600, the effects are already being felt. One uh, resident runs the East Side Bar and Grill, which she and her husband, Kevin, bought about three years ago. We were just starting to get our feet underneath us, and then COVID-19 hit and the restrictions. She's had business from the cruise building. The pipeline outside the town helped her business stay afloat last year, but now those crews are gone. It's not just our town. It's going to be um, Milford. It's going to be... Uh, uh, Friend, another town affect uh, Crete and others. We empathize with uh, with that, says Larry Wright. He's the chairman of the Ponca tribe, which is part of a coalition of Native Americans, landowners, and environmental groups that have fought the pipeline for years. We know what it's like to lose land, uh, Wright says. We know what it's like to have land taken away from us. It would have provided about twelve million dollars in property tax relief for our communities. Lamented one Lamas, uh, one governor from Nebraska, Pete Ricketts, a Republican. There are twenty thousand miles of pipeline already in Nebraska, he says. It's the safest way to move oil, and it certainly is that. And if you truly are worried about the environment, you want to see oil move this way versus another way. Well, the Biden administration has promised the jobs and revenue can be made up with new jobs in the booming renewables market. Solyndra comes to mind. That's according to John Kerry, the newly appointed special presidential envoy for climate. What President Biden wants to do, he says, is to make sure those folks have better choices Uh, that they have alternatives, that they can be the people who go to work to make the solar panels. 
Well, good luck with that, Mr. Kerry. We haven't seen it successfully applied to date. Well, several senators from the states involved say that they will fight the administration's decision, but Rickett says it's really up to the TC Energy now. He's hoping they continue to uh, engage in the long fight. He encourages them to do so, and it will certainly be a long fight. Well, is there a legal hurdle that could trip up the uh, Biden cancellation of the pipeline? Well, a lawsuit from across the northern U.S. border over the administration's halting of that oil pipeline could hang on a Supreme Court ruling against the Trump administration related to the southern border. Well, in his first day of office, as I mentioned, the president canceled construction of the Keystone XL oil pipeline, an action projected to wipe out 11,000 jobs, including 8,000 union jobs. Well, the president's move reversed President Trump's executive order in early 2017. Jason Kenney, with Alberta Premier, threatened legal action against the new administration, calling cancellation of the project a gut punch and an insult to Canada. Well, the Alberta-based TC Energy Corporation didn't respond to inquiries from the story uh, immediately, but they are going to review the decision, they say, assess its implications, and consider their options. Well, a recent Supreme Court case that may provide some guidance is the Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California. In a 5-4 decision last June, the justices ruled that the Trump administration violated the Administrative Procedure Act by doing away with the Obama administration policy called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. The key similarity is the concept of reliance interest. Uh, Giancarlo Canaparo, a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, uh, pointed out that the phrase is mentioned several times in the high court's opinion in the DACA case. President Obama's executive action, who of course was president at the time, allowed illegal immigrants brought to the United States as minors to stay legally under certain circumstances, created an exception among people in the country. Thus, if the U.S. government wanted to scrap the DACA policy, it would have to go through an administrative procedure. Now, stay with me because there is a relationship here that's relevant. Well, this created a reliance interest in the policy, the majority opinion by Chief Justice Roberts said. Now, there's a new court now. We'll have to see what happens next. Well, TC Energy and the Canadian government likely also would have a reliance interest. Kanaparo points out he's been researching potential legal avenues for the pipeline case. In DHS versus Regents, the court found that Trump couldn't rescind DACA, even though it was an executive action, because there was a reliance uh, interest. Well, that could uh, be a stumbling block for Biden with regard to the Keystone Pipeline. The administration didn't consider any reliance interest in this process. Well, just as uh, President Obama's DACA started out, uh, or rather stated that certain people could live and work in the United States, Trump's go-ahead with the Keystone XL instituted a right to build a pipeline across the Canadian-U.S. border. Both policies, according to court precedent, created rights that required the government to go through a procedure to undo. So it will be interesting to see how the court responds when or if the court responds, particularly to that um, legal loophole, if you will. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll hear an interesting conversation with J. Scott Turner, author of Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. That's coming up later this hour. Well, of course, with a new administration, we have a new transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, and he has something of a dilemma. He can't decide which method he prefers uh, to make more of Americans' hard-earned money and to uh, transfer it to government coffers. 
On the one hand, it seems the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, prefers a good old-fashioned tax increase on gasoline. All options need to be on the table, he says. The gas tax has not been increased since 1993, and apparently that's a bad thing. And it's never been paid to inflation, he stated during a Senate confirmation hearing last week. And that's uh, one of the reasons why the current state of the Highway Trust Fund is uh, there's more uh, out than coming in. Up until now, that's been addressed with general funding transfer. I don't know whether Congress would want to continue doing that, end quote. Well, Secretary Buttigieg also sees electric vehicles as a problem in that regard. In the near term, we need a solution that can provide some predictability and sustainability. In the long term, he says, we need to bear in mind also that as vehicles become more efficient and as we pursue electrification, sooner or later, there will be questions about whether the gas tax can be effective at all. Of course, they don't require gasoline. Well, right now, the federal gas tax is 184 cents per gallon and the average of total state taxes is 29.8 cents per gallon now think about that in terms of what you pay per gallon in oregon and washington state gas taxes range from a high of 62.47 cents per gallon in california to a low of 13.77 cents per gallon in alaska well the revenue goes into the highway trust fund pays for most of the government's highway and mass transit spending well nonetheless if the the, uh, dynamic addressed by Buttigieg sounds familiar It's because increased taxes on cigarette smoking ultimately precipitated declines in smoking and the revenues such taxes were supposed to generate. Well, Buttigieg is on firm ground when he assumes greater electrification of vehicles will lead to declining gas tax revenues. And so, of course, some something must be done. And that goes double if Americans are forbidden to drive fossil fuel powered vehicles, period. Wholly irrespective of reality, many progressives believe technological progress can simply be mandated. So let it be said, so let it be done. Mandated into existence by a specific date. Uh, they're willing to ignore the uncomfortable reality that mass, popu- uh, mass production rather, of electric vehicles may produce an ecological cure worse than the disease it's supposed to eradicate. So I suppose the question is, what's the other alternative? Well, apparently Secretary Buttigieg is uh, toying with the idea of taxing Americans for the number of miles they drive. A lot has been suggested recently about the idea of vehicle mile travel based insurance and other elements. So if we're uh, committed to the idea of user pay, uh, that part of uh, how you might do that would be based on vehicle miles traveled, he said. But that raises, of course, um, concerns about privacy, and there remains some technological question as well. These are examples of some of the things that could be part of a solution, but I know that's going to uh, have to be a conversation, not only in the administration, but with Congress as well. Well, Nicholas uh, Balzi, who explained uh, what the VMT system is really all about, says that to implement this system, the federal government would likely have to establish a unit uniform in-car system for tracking the number of miles a driver travels, similar to the EasyPass transponder that drivers put in their vehicles to pay tolls. Now, are the American people open to this idea for the sake of determining what they owe? In other words, under the auspices of going green, government would gain the power to track every vehicle in the nation in real time. And if Americans believe the data collected will be used solely to determine miles driven, they're incredibly naive. Data from electronic toll collection systems have already been used uh, in divorce and child custody cases in um, uh, police have been able to use the data from car computers to solve crimes. Uh, again, another layer of bureaucracy and surveillance would be just the ticket for a Biden administration, a Democrat-controlled Congress, and an American left in general uh, with a demonstrated appetite 
for defining those who fail to fully embrace progressive dogma as problematic at best and potentially domestic terrorists at worst. But whatever revenues are generated, they're being touted as one of the streams used to fund the Biden administration's trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. One suspects that, um, much like the Obama administration's self-admitted sham known as the shovel-ready stimulus package, the funds generated here would be used to uh, bail out blue state budget profligacy, even in areas wholly unrelated to infrastructure. Well, the big picture, under the banner of zero emissions by a fixed date, wholly irrespective of whether or not viable alternatives exist, Americans should be prepared to endure all the costly um, are permutations, and there will be several, associated with the Democrats' determination to wean the nation off fossil fuels. Well, via executive order, President Biden has already placed a 60-day moratorium on new oil and gas leases on public lands that will likely become permanent, reverse the rollbacks on vehicle emission standards, cancel the uh, Keystone Pipeline pod project, and reestablished a working group to calculate the social costs associated with greenhouse gases. Uh, maybe it would be better to calculate the job losses such policies will engender, but as uh, John Kerry has uh, said, oh, there'll be plenty of work done. Well, canceling Keystone estimated 11,000 jobs directly lost, as many as 60,000 more indirectly. If the moratorium on oil and gas leases becomes permanent, another 1 million jobs will be vaporized. And it all comes courtesy of an administration whose campaign slogan was Build Back Better. Reality check, we've got guys that haven't worked in months, and in some cases, years. And to have a project of this magnitude canceled, it's going to hurt a lot of people, a lot of families, a lot of communities. That's what one uh, welding foreman in reference to the Keystone cancellation points out. Secretary Buttigieg insists people like uh, Crabtree, the gentleman I just quoted, continue to be employed in good-paying union jobs, even if they might be different ones. What those jobs are is uh, Big question mark. And climate czar John Kerry says these folks can go to work to make the solar panels. Well, Mr. Crabtree wasn't buying it. I don't consider this a job. I consider it a career, he said in response. You spend a lifetime fine-tuning your skills, and if you go start another job, you're starting at the bottom. I doubt that these politicians would like it if someone told them to go start and find a different job, city council, or maybe mayor of a small town. In reality, members of our political class don't give, well, much interest. As far as they're concerned, everybody laid off as a result of their environmental extremism can learn a code. Higher gas, energy prices, well, you can always make solar panels, Secretary Kerry says. Well, the new eyebrow-raising report suggests the White House communications team has attempted to screen questions for the press secretary, Jen Psaki, in advance of daily briefings as media watchdogs caution that the Biden team will have to walk a fine line given the way the reporters treated President Trump's spokespeople. Well, Spectator USA editor Amber Athey, who, who uh, used to be a White House correspondent for the Daily Caller, never experienced anything resembling what Biden's communication staff has been accused of. The Trump administration certainly never asked me for questions in advance, and I suspect there would have been a universal outrage from reporters if they had done so. Well, reporters have reportedly gotten so frustrated by the practice that they're complaining to their colleagues. This is a totally normal procedure if you live in the banana republic. It's absolute unheard of in this country, however. When reached for comment, a White House spokesperson uh, said um, that that was not the case. Our goal is to make the daily briefing as useful and informative as possible for both reporters and the public. Part of meeting with objective 
uh, meeting that objective rather regularly, engaging with reporters who will be in the briefing room to understand how the White House can be most helpful in getting them the information they need. In other words, you ask what kinds of questions uh, do you intend to ask so that we can be better prepared to ask them, keeping in mind that the press secretary determines who's heard during those press briefings. More on that story as it continues to develop, and reporters on both the right and the left are raising their voices and questions. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to share a conversation with J. Scott Turner, author of Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest asks the question, what makes something alive and why Darwinism has led us to a scientific dead end? Well, Dr. J. Scott Turner is a State University of New York or SUNY professor. He's a biologist and physiologist, and he argues that modern Darwinism, materialistic and mechanistic biases have left us rather unable to define what life is and and only an openness to the qualities of life's purposefulness, intelligence, and striving will move the field forward. Well, in his book, Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive, and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It, he draws on the work of Claude Bernard, a contemporary of uh, Darwin, revered amongst uh, physiologists as the founder of experimental physiology to build on Bernard's dangerous idea of homeostasis, which seeks to identify what makes life a unique phenomenon of nature. To fully understand life, he suggests, includes including its evolution, he argues that we must move beyond strictly enforced boundaries of mechanism and materialism to explore living nature as distinctly purposeful and driven. It's a thoughtful appeal to widen our perspective of biology that's grounded solidly in scientific evidence. And in the book, Purpose and Desire, he seeks to widen that perspective and bridge the ideological evolutionary divide by recovering evolution as a distinctive phenomenon of purposeful life. Well, Dr. J. Scott Turner is a leading biologist and physiologist and professor of biology at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. His work has uh, garnered attention in the New York Times book review, Science, Nature, American Scientist, National Geographic Online, NPR, Science Friday, and other leading media outlets. He's the author of two books with Harvard University Press, The Extended Organism, The Physiology of Animal-Built Structures, and The Tinker Accomplice, How Design Emerges from Life Itself, published in 2007. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Georgine. It's, uh, it's, it's delightful to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, you're certainly welcome. You begin by uh, quoting uh, uh, something of a caricature of uh, Provine, Crick, Dawkins, and Danette to make your point that there is a, uh, there's a gaping hole in the science of life. Um, that it's sort of the elephant in the room that science doesn't want to acknowledge. Let's begin with the premise of the book and uh, why you think it's important in quoting these uh, these four to draw our attention to what's uh, not being given attention within uh, the scientific community that's studying life. Well, if you speak to most biologists, uh, in public anyway, they uh, try to avoid squishy things like intentionality and purposefulness and things like this. 
the common uh, reflex is to uh, bracket these things in scare quotes, you know, as if you really don't mean what you're saying. And 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 this is this is a phenomenon that's occupied biology actually for most of the 20th century, but it really uh, has not been the historical norm in biology. The the historic norm has been to frankly acknowledge that living things are purposeful. They have intention. They they are designed. And uh, you know, one can have lots of questions about where those phenomena come from, but the thing that strikes one if you look at anything alive is just how purposeful, uh, intentional, and uh, often well-designed they are. And the four quotes that I uh, put, uh, that I open the book with uh, exemplifies this kind of this kind of public face of biology that uh, we present to the to the uh, to the general public. That's you know it's, it's it's really kind of a bleak world out there. You know, there's no purpose. There's no intentionality or just bags of molecules and uh, these kinds of things. And it is a caricature. Uh, these are very uh, sophisticated thinkers about evolution. But this is the public face that we're putting forth. That is, it's not allowed to talk about the most distinctive things about life, which is that it's purposeful and it's intentional. And and there are some really important questions and unanswered questions about where those attributes come from. You recall a conversation you had with some associates and students uh, regarding the very problem of intentionality and purposefulness, and you asked the question of a friend, what if intentionality is real? What if intentionality is not only real, but is actually the most important attribute of life? Could we then be scientists true to our calling if we ignored it? And is that part of the problem uh, in including uh, intentionality and purpose uh, within the scientific context that it questions um, or that the fear is that it calls into question science at all when it is applied to life. It is a problem, and that particular conversation, you know, we were we were trying to uh, explore this very question. You know, what if what if the most important thing about life is actually its intentionality and its purposefulness? You know, how can we possibly uh, even uh, try to understand it if we immediately shove those things off to the side and? The response of my colleagues, of course, was that no, we could not be biologists. We could be philosophers or theologians, but we couldn't uh, claim uh, being biology. And this is one of the things that most scientists, uh, biologists in particular, have to face uh, quite early on in their career. It's 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 kind of a Hobson's choice. You know, you can mm-hmm. either. Uh, acknowledge the the frank intentionality and purposefulness of living things, but then you're not allowed to be a real biologist. Or you can uh, ignore those things and be a real biologist, but then you're ignoring really the most important things about life itself. And you know, it's it's it has led us into um, really kind of a kind of a scientific uh, dead end. And 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 despite you know science being a marvelous enterprise and you know, lots of uh, research, interesting research going on, uh, lots of interesting products coming out of it. It's not really getting us toward the philosophy, really, of what life is. And my argument is that we can't really have a coherent theory of life uh, or even a coherent theory of evolution if we don't acknowledge those very important uh, and essential attributes of living things. I mentioned earlier that uh, your earlier book, The Tinker's Accomplice, you were um, called into question by one of the critics of the book, the chapter that dealt with intentionality and purpose, um, and your credentials as a true scientist as opposed to someone who is um, a sort of a closet uh, Christian or someone whose theology are attempting to impose uh, into scientific theory. Uh, you you have dealt with that, but this book seems to double down on the very thing that you were 
uh, critiqued for because, as I think you argue in the book, this is central to our understanding of life. Well, yes, I did get taken to task by that one reviewer. Uh, uh, This one reviewer was quite uh, appalled that I was actually uh, uh, talking about intentionality in a book about science. And this is an example of the Hobbes' choice that we all face. You know, if you talk about these kinds of uh, kind of squishy ideas uh, that are really essential, you're sort of drummed out of the core. And and this is one of the uh, sad things about our public uh, debate about this. And it's essential that we have a sound public debate. Uh, You know, one of the one of the criticisms uh, or forms of criticism is you know oh well you know you're you're not a real evolutionist or you're not a real scientist because you're not a member of the plug of the club and 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 this uh, you know sort of builds this uh, this uh, kind of self-referential bubble that people uh, converse in that just won't admit any outside ideas and you're right I did double down in this book this new book uh, on that uh, argument because uh, this is where the logic has led me. But I am coming into the question from outside you know, standard evolutionary theory. That doesn't mean that I don't have you know, important things to say about evolution because the interface between evolution and physiology has been a central part of my career for more than 30 years now. But uh, you know, this notion that you cannot possibly uh, comment on this or criticize our, our lovely theories that we're looking at inside our bubbles, uh, this is an example of one of the things that I think is driving biology and evolution toward a crisis. So let me ask you what your your critic um, suggested. Is your primary motivation as a scientist to be true to your art, or is it as a man of faith attempting to confirm what you've already uh, come to believe about uh, purposefulness and intentionality in creation or in uh, biological order? Well, this is one of the problems about uh, the, these closed bubbles. You know, one of the things that, that uh, we don't teach uh, biology students these days is philosophy. And mm-hmm. that makes, makes these students uh, really completely incapable of understanding that evolution actually derives from a set of philosophical presumptions about the world. And there are other ways of thinking philosophically about the world out there. And, and you know, the, the, the notion that this one particular philosophical viewpoint, namely mechanism and materialism and reductionism, is the only scientifically legitimate way to think about science, this is something that's, that's actually a very uh, new phenomenon in the entire history of the biological sciences. And, and so the issue of, of you, know, the, you know, are you confirming your, your uh, biases in religious thought or biases in philosophical thought, uh, you know, we as scientists, and I include a lot of, most of my colleagues in this, we as scientists, we really strive very hard to, to, you know, have nature tell us the answers to the questions that we ask without trying to filter it through uh, some kind of philosophical bias. But at the end of the day, you do have to build your ideas about life around some philosophical foundation. And and the notion that you know, it, it's somehow impermissible to speak about intentionality and purpose, uh, thought, you know, what are those kinds of things, uh, this this is this is something that that uh, is a product of really uh, 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 channeling people into this one particular philosophical bubble, and and my argument is that you know we need to open up the bubble a little bit. We need to start uh, uh, you know admitting other ways of looking at life and thinking about life uh, philosophically, and 
it's not entirely a closed club among my colleagues. You know, you see many, you know, I, I know many people who are very serious questioners of, 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 of life from different philosophical perspectives, and, and they're very, very good scientists. But one of the problems is that, you know, you, you have a kind of a dominant uh, way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very public, uh, publicly prominent uh, way of looking at it. And, and one of the pernicious things is that it really uh, poisons the world, I, I think, taints the public debate about evolution, uh, which includes uh, things like, well, how do we teach our kids about evolution? You know, what do we teach them about it? Or what do we teach them about how it works? And 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 because we're really talking about, uh, you know, people who, defend, who are defending a, a kind of piece of turf against uh, all philosophical uh, critics of it, uh, then this has led to some, I, I think, kind of unfortunate uh, uh, public battles over how we teach evolution in schools. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. We're talking with Dr. J. Scott Turner. He's a leading biologist and physiologist, professor of biology at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. We'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation on his book, Purpose and Desire. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. J. Scott Turner. He's the author of Purpose and Desire, a book published by Harper One, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. Uh, you suggest in the book that you've come to believe that there's something presently wrong with how scientists think about life, its existence, its origins, and evolution, and that this is really a, a relatively recent um, narrowing of uh, scientific inquiry. Can you give us a, a bit of the history as you do uh, in the book of how we arrived at a point in which um, intentionality and purpose, for example, are no longer considered legitimate uh, areas for scientific uh, inquiry. Well, it's a very interesting history, and I do go into uh, the history uh, to to uh, a pretty considerable extent in the book because I think it's important that the history be told uh, in, uh, I think, a, a way that accurately reflects what the actual history is. And if you look at the grand scheme of this, let's start from Charles Darwin, for example. Uh, Darwin actually had a very nuanced view of, of what drove evolution. He clearly regarded uh, natural selection as important. He regarded heredity as important. But he also regarded the phenomenon of adaptation and the ability to compete uh, in nature as important aspects of this. And and what happens uh, towards the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, Darwin himself came under quite a bit of uh, criticism. And it's a historical period that... Uh, People have variously labeled the crisis of Darwinism or the eclipse of Darwinism or those kinds of things. And what emerged out of that was uh, a completely non-Darwinian way of thinking about evolution. Uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan, and anyone who's taken biology knows about Morgan because they've probably done laboratory exercises with uh, fruit flies and genetics. Uh, as a consequence of that, uh, uh, Darwinism became transformed uh, in, in an odd way into being completely a theory of heredity. And of course, this was Thomas Hunt Morgan's uh, basic uh, approach to evolution. He regarded the gene as prime. He regarded genes as the driver of evolution. And somehow that viewpoint, which is really anti-Darwinian, uh, became relabeled as neo-Darwinism. And 
So consequently, modern Darwinism is really very, very different from the way that uh, Charles Darwin himself thought about it, in fact. And I argue in the book, actually, that it's a stretch to even call it Darwinian, that, uh, that this notion that it's just genes, uh, it's just genetic heredity that actually uh, is is the object of selection and, and what drives evolution is really a non-Darwinian way of thinking about it. And, of course, one of the things that happens there is that uh, you fall very easily into this machine metaphor of what natural selection is, where, you know, where mechanism and, uh, and uh, materialism start to uh, loom very large in the way that you think. And, and it has totally um, obscured the, the really nuanced way of, of thinking about evolution that was exemplified in Charles Darwin. And Darwin himself actually drew inspiration from older uh, vitalist uh, traditions about life, which was which were quite uh, open about accepting that life was intentional and uh, purposeful and and uh, all those kinds of important attributes. But one of the sad consequences of the mechanistic approach to life is that we really have have divorced uh, the science of life from the phenomenon of life itself because we're ignoring its most important attributes. Um, you make the statement that um, uh, that what's happened is we've drawn modern biology into a bit of a philosophical pickle uh, to it. If biology claims to be a distinct science, on what grounds is the distinction built? And then later um, you uh, you point out where then should life's distinctive attribute be sought? And you argue in the book that agency is where the distinction can be reliably drawn. Um, those are important questions that distinguish the biology from other sciences. Can you expand on that a bit? Sure. The, the, the whole phenomenon of agency is another one of these interesting uh, and, and subtle ways of, of, of thinking about life. And, of course, uh, I don't think any biologist would deny that there's agency in life, but the agency that they tend to fall into and, and, uh, and, and give uh, attention to is, is the same kind of agency that, that say, uh, an engine uh, can be to drive a car forward. You know, that, that's an agent that's doing something, but it's strictly a machine. And the, uh, the other type of agency, which I think is absolutely essential, is a kind of purposeful agency, the agency that is really unique to life. And uh, to carry on the analogy of the engine, the engine might be one kind of agent, but the person who drives the car from one place to another is is a very purposeful agent, and and I, I'm 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 arguing that that if if you limit your thinking to just the kind of mechanical agency that we tend to fall into now, you're not going to be able to define life. Uh, you simply cannot come up with the ability to distinguish life from uh, non-life, even though. If you look at something living, you very quickly and easily say that, well, yes, that's alive and something else uh, is not. But uh, when you take our modern mechanistic view of it, that is uh, this kind of mechanical passive agency, as it's been called, then you end up not being able to define life at all. And the only way that you really can distinguish life from non-life, I argue in the book, is that is that you have to account for this kind of purposeful agency. That is, life is intentional. It's purposeful. It strives toward ends. And, and uh, that, unfortunately, is one of the philosophical no-nos that uh, we as biologists are trained to avoid. In Purpose and Desire, you make the point that what's at stake is whether there will be a coherent theory of life. And without that coherent theory, whatever we think about life doesn't hold water. 
Yes, that's right. That's the problem with incoherency. And, and, and you know, you, you can, you can uh, you know, if you approach this problem from outside the, the philosophical bubble, if you will, you start to see all kinds of incoherencies that, that, um, that um, the people inside the bubble may not be able to see or that they have explained away to their satisfaction. And one of the most uh, one of the most um, um, obvious ones, and one that's probably familiar to most of your listeners, is this notion of of, of what adaptation is. And, and adaptation, of course, is the tendency of organisms to fit well into their environments. And the uh, standard uh, genetic explanation of of uh, adaptation is that you have selection for adaptation genes, or good function genes, or apt function genes or whatever uh, you would like to uh, call them. And of course, how do you identify apt function genes? Well, you identify them as the genes being selected. So you end up in this kind of, uh, in this kind of uh, a little uh, circular, bit of circular reasoning that, that uh, uh, people from outside the bubble have been pointing out for a long time. You know, creationists and intelligent design uh, theory people have been saying this for ages. But, uh, you know, because, you know, we're, we're, we're we're encased in this nice, comfortable bubble. You know, it's very easy to to uh, dismiss that, and that's uh, that's one obvious example. But you see it throughout uh, uh, evolutionary thought. You know, it, I, one of the reasons why I went through all the historical uh, development of biological thought is that I first of all wanted to uh, show that you know these were brilliant men who. Who, uh, well, and women. I, sorry, I don't mean to leave leave, leave, leave out the, the the other gender, but uh, you know there were brilliant people who have been thinking about evolution for a long period of time, but they've been thinking about it from inside uh, this this philosophical presumption, and and ultimately in all of these very brilliant ideas about how life originated, about how how <clears throat> uh, organisms fit into their environment, about natural selection. All these brilliant things ultimately have to come to some point where uh, you introduce kind of what I call magical thinking. You know that 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 you admit that okay, the intentionality is there and the purpose is there, but we're going to put it in quotes and, and call it apparent intentionality and apparent design and those kinds of things, uh, so that we don't have to think about it, mm-hmm. so we can attend to our our beautiful theories and and uh, and and so. These kinds of incoherencies are rife throughout the history of of modern uh, evolutionism and modern biology, and and uh, they're mostly unacknowledged, in my opinion. Well, I wish we had more time. We didn't really have a chance to get into the phenomenon of homeostasis, which is uh, uh, throughout your book. Uh, but I do appreciate your taking the time to talk with a novice such as myself and our listening audience. <laughs> Once again, the title of the book is Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. It's really a, a fascinating examination of how things are uh, examined from a scientific perspective and what's left out. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking with me. I appreciate it. Georgine, thank you for having me on your show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today on the program, this second hour, we'll hear a classic interview with Tom Halliday. He's the author of Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart, Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. That's coming up in the latter half of today's second hour. 
We're winding our way through some of the headline news of the day. And among those uh, headline stories, Democrat congressional leaders to, on Monday, rather, introduced a budget resolution that's going to let lawmakers pass a fresh COVID-19 relief package without Republican support. Now, this despite the meeting yesterday with President Biden and 10 moderate, in quotes, uh, Republicans and his meeting with Democrats earlier today. Um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced the joint budget resolution. The measure is the first step, they say, in potentially enacting a budget reconciliation bill, which would let Democrats pass the package, even if no Republicans back it, because they hold majorities in both the House and in the Senate. Congress has a responsibility, they say, to quickly deliver immediate comprehensive relief to the American people hurting from COVID-19, the pair said in a statement. We're hopeful Republicans will work in a bipartisan manner to support assistance to their communities, but the American people cannot afford any more delays, and Congress must act to prevent more needless suffering. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Pelosi dragged a uh, drug her feet right up and past the election because it was politically more expedient to do so, but now apparently we're in a rush. Congressional Democrats have united behind President Biden's $1.9 trillion relief package. It features another round of stimulus checks, funding for states, and an increase in the minimum wage. Yeah, unrelated, and during a pandemic, not the best uh, way if you pencil it out. Uh, mathematically. Well, a number of Republicans have balked at the price tag, pointing out that money remains to be spent of the $900 billion stimulus passed late last year. Well, a group of 10 Senate Republicans unveiled a counter offer on Monday that to uh, totals of $618 billion. The group was scheduled to and did meet with the president at the White House on Monday evening to discuss their respective plans. He certainly supports them moving forward to move a package ahead. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters uh, in Washington shortly before the pair, Schumer and Pelosi, announced their resolution. Biden is uh, leaving the mechanics through which they move up to the Democratic lawmakers, she went on to say. He's leaving it up to them, and he believes there is still room for bipartisan support for this package. Of course, that would require leadership on his part, but he's leaving it to the um, one side of the aisle. The president feels the Republicans package is too small, she went on to say. Well, that smaller proposal cuts the amount spread through checks, making them more targeted. It also decreased the funding for schools and doesn't include a minimum wage hike. Money for COVID-19 vaccines is roughly the same. Well, in other news that will impact the nation next week, the House impeachment managers on Tuesday uh, filed a pre-trial brief in their case against former President Donald Trump, previewing the arguments they will make against him in the Senate trial set to start in one week, a week from today, I should say. Well, in a grievous betrayal of his oath of office, President Trump incited a violent mob to attack the United States Capitol during the joint session, thus impeding Congress confirmation of Joseph Biden Jr. as the winner of the presidential election. The impeachment managers uh, have said they're led by Representative Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from Maryland. As it stormed the Capitol, the mob yelled out, President Trump sent us hang Mr. Pence and traitor, traitor, traitor. They added, this is not a case where elections alone are a sufficient safe ground, safeguard rather against future abuse. It is the electoral process itself that President Trump attacked, and that must be protected from him and anyone else who would seek to mimic his behavior, end quote. Well, the brief said that the facts are compelling and the evidence is overwhelming. Whether or not there will actually be a hearing remains to be seen, given the objection among 50 of uh, nearly 50 senators on the Republican side, I believe 45, suggesting this is an unconstitutional exercise. 
the president's legal team is arguing that the articles uh, of impeachment are in violation of the uh, the Constitution, and they're calling on the Senate to acquit, which may very well be the case. It is denied that the 45th president of the United States ever engaged in a violation of his oath of office, the Trump legal team's brief says in response to the Democrats. To the contrary, at all times, Donald Trump fully and faithfully executed his duties as president of the United States and at all times acted to the best of his ability to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States while never engaging in any high crimes or misdemeanors, end quote. Well, Trump's legal team also argues that a Senate trial against him would be unconstitutional. Well, in other news, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, the outgoing chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, sent his successor, Senator Dick Durbin, a letter that seemed to accuse the Illinois Democrat of political gamesmanship over his hearing requests for Judge Merrick Garland, President Biden's pick to be the attorney general. Durbin requested that uh, Graham hold a February 8th hearing that would allow a day's worth of testimony before the Senate shift focus to former President Trump's impeachment trial. Graham referred to the trial as an unprecedented act of political theater. Well, Lindsey Graham wrote that Garland deserves a prompt hearing and went as far as to say that he is inclined to support him for the post. But he said a one-day hearing is insufficient and pointed to how the last five nominees have had two days of hearings and said it isn't clear why Garland's extensive record deserves any less. Democrats do not get to score political points in an unprecedented act of political theater on one hand, while also trying to claim the mantle of good government on the other. Well, Politico reported that uh, Dick Durbin sent Graham a letter about having uh, uh, the hearing prior to the impeachment trial. The report said Republicans still control some committees due to the fact that an organizing resolution has yet to be complete by the Senate that will split that is split 50-50. Durbin insists in his letter that the lack of a confirmed attorney general is a safety concern for the country. There is simply no justification to object to a February 8th hearing. Well, in other developments, Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland will face questions over the Hunter Biden probe in the uh, hearing or hearings, depending on how this all falls out. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez revealed Monday that she is a survivor of a sexual assault while she was taking uh, rather talking to followers on Instagram Live. She spoke to about 100,000 viewers about last month's riot at the Capitol and said she was getting emotional over calls to move on from the incident. She said that is the same tactic employed by abusers. Well, the New York Post reported that she opened up uh, how she took over in her uh, took cover rather in her office and overheard someone say, where is she? Where is she? It was later learned that was Capitol police officer attempting to protect her. She said that she thought she was going to die. I've never been quieter in my life. She said, according to the paper, it turned out that the person was a Capitol police officer, but the fear was gripping. Uh, And by the way, uh, she tweeted from the location in real time and her account some days later and the account in real time seemed to differ rather dramatically, but making a political point uh, added a bit of um, drama. In other developments, uh, uh, Congresswoman AOC's uh, Ted Cruz tweet sparked some growing backlash from House Republicans, and Representative Burgess Owens ripped her for invoking a white supremacist label to make a point about health care. Representative Chip Roy called on the uh, Congresswoman to apologize for tweeting Ted Cruz almost had her murdered, And the White House remained silent on her claim that Senator Cruz almost had her murdered amid the push for um, the country to unify. Uh, 
Well, Mark Zuckerberg and top uh, Facebook executives admit that they have too much power and that they want to help the Biden agenda in leaked videos. Newly released video footage features Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg and other executives admitting that they, too, uh, they have too much power while expressing eagerness to work with the Biden administration. The right-wing guerrilla news outlet Project Veritas obtained recorded virtual conference calls from the Facebook insider that appeared to shed light on how much influence the tech giant will have under the Biden presidency. In his first day, President Biden has already issued a number of executive orders on areas that we as a company really uh, cared quite deeply about, Zuckerberg says in a compilation video of his recorded remarks from the 21st of last month. I think that these were all important and positive steps, and I am looking forward to opportunities where Facebook is going to be able to work together with this new administration on some of their top priorities, starting with the COVID response, end quote. Well, former UK Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, Facebook's Vice President of Global Affairs, is heard acknowledging world leaders who have spoken out against the company's decision to ban former President Donald Trump's account following the Capitol riot. According to Clegg, Facebook's critics say that this shows that private companies have got too much power and that they should be only uh, making these decisions in a way that is um, framed by democratically agreed principles. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next couple of segments this hour, we're going to hear from Tom Holliday. He is the author of Putting It Together, again, when it's all fallen apart, Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. That's coming up in just a little bit. Well, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg used users' data as a bargaining chip to consolidate the company's power. That's according to leaked documents revealing. And a Twitter whistleblower leaked video of Dorsey telling staff actions will be much bigger than the Trump ban. Not sure what that means. We'll keep an eye appealed. Mitch McConnell ripped Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, calling her um, loony lies a cancer for the GOP. Well, the Trump impeachment lawyers are calling out um, Senate Democrats saying the ex-president has no chance of a fair and full trial. Meanwhile, Black Lives Matter protesters surrounded a Rochester police station after officers pepper sprayed and restrained a nine-year-old girl. Governor Andrew Cuomo drove to New York City during the snowstorm after warning New Yorkers to stay off the roads. Oh, I'm so grateful for the exceptions that the elites have forged for themselves. Well, U.S. home sales are expected to remain constant over the next two years, Reuters says, according to a new poll. And Republicans say Biden's stimulus uh, meeting was productive, but no deal was struck. American Airlines CEO is telling employees to brace for furlough warnings and investment executives are predicting GameStop will top $1,000 per share. That, of course, is being challenged in some pretty significant ways. Well, the story claims the Biden communications teams wants reporters questions in advance. According to the Daily Beast, they reference three sources with knowledge of the matter, as well as written communications reviewed uh, who um, intimated that the Biden communications team had made the approaches to reporters. One reporter raised the issue during an informal White House Correspondents Association Zoom call last Friday. According to multiple sources, leaders at the meeting advised print reporters to push back against requests by the White House press team to learn of questions in advance or simply to not respond to the Biden team's inquiries. Um, dangerous precedent for all his faults. Trump took on all comers. Well, Democrats supporting teachers unions got funding from the teachers union. 
This is shocking. Uh, The story includes a list of Democrats who want to keep schools closed while they take funds from the union that wants to keep schools closed. Ellie Buffkin points out that if GOP candidates for the 2022 are at all serious, they need to read this list and make banners reminding people what these Democrats did to their kids. Well, the White House press secretary says uh, President Biden backs censorship of former President Trump. She said, we've spoken to him and he's spoken to the need for social media platforms to continue to take steps to reduce hate speech. The video uh, can be found on Twitter. Dave Rubin points out this is extraordinarily dangerous and shows how how much big tech is an extension of the government. Um, The First Amendment stops government from silencing you. So the government wants to outsource that to the tech companies. Also, as per the Supreme Court, there is no such thing as hate speech. Well, the feds uh, are missing some 20 million doses of the vaccines. You might want to check around your yard. The story does note that while reportedly about 10 percent may be due to reported uh, lags from the states, they're still trying to track the rest of the um, doses, which may be in a warehouse or in process of being delivered. They've already been blasted, being unable to say how much of the vaccine they have on hand, which would seem to be a simple concept. To figure out Black Lives Matter is pushing an aggressive trans agenda in public schools and some parents have opted to keep their kids home while they do. Meanwhile, another female athlete has joined voices of women outraged that the president wants men to be able to compete as women. California Governor Newsom says tenants are forgiven from paying through June. Now, the owners of those properties, on the other hand, are struggling. The law would use federal stimulus dollars to pay off 80 percent of some tenants unpaid rent, but only if landlords agree to forgive the remaining 20 percent. If landlords refuse the deal, the law would pay off 25 percent of the tenants unpaid rent to make sure they qualify for eviction protections. Meanwhile, more on Republican Kevin Falconer's challenge to uh, Governor Newsom can be found at Politico. It's kind of an interesting read. Well, Oregon's law that uh, took effect yesterday decriminalizing drugs started. And the story notes police in Oregon can no longer arrest someone for possession of small amounts of heroin, methamphetamine, LSD, oxycodone, or other drugs as a ballot measure that decriminalized them took effect. Well, Stacey Abrams from Georgia has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize from the um, story U.S. voting rights activist and Democratic Party politician Stacey Abrams has been nominated for this year's Nobel Peace Prize for her work to promote nonviolent change via the ballot box, a Norwegian lawmaker said on Monday. Guy Benson points out step one, refuse to concede an election loss, which we've seen a lot of. And from Stephen Miller, Stacey Abrams will be happy to accept the award no matter who wins it. Government and politics, friendly fire. Some of Biden's top economic advisors are pushing back on his stimulus package. And Pennsylvania's secretary of state at the center of um, Trump election concerns has resigned for failing to comply with an unrelated state election law. Well, a bail fund praised by Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris, has twice freed the same rioter who, as it turns out, was just charged again. This thing, I think, with a felony. Well, New York Times was reviewing a book advocating blowing up pipelines to combat climate change. Just what we need. Well, the White House struck a $230 million deal for at-home coronavirus testing kits, and Republicans have introduced a measure to block Gitmo detainees from being vaccinated before Americans. Governor Andrew Cuomo loses uh, nine top health officials after downplaying experts, most recently saying he doesn't really trust experts. So find nitwits and follow their advice. Um, Who to thunk it? A top epidemiologist says double masking 
increases infection risks. Now, Dr. Fauci, anyway, it's hard to keep up. Well, the Congressional Budget Office sees rapid growth recovery and the labor force returning to pre-pandemic levels by 2022. By the way, this is just the first second month of 2021. Landlords are struggling to make ends meet as the CDC extends eviction bans. We kind of pick and choose who the winners and losers will be in all of this. Uh, They're playing with our lives. So say locals as they lash out at uh, President Biden canceling the Keystone XL pipeline. Meanwhile, Dodge is warning that regulations are killing the V8 engine. When the annals of the social justice caliphate, an Oregon economist, couldn't think of another example of an area that has so quickly fallen into disfavor. Willamette Week points out that uh, Portland has gone from one of the most desirable locations in the country just four years ago to near the bottom of an 80-city ranking. That ranking was compiled by the Urban Land Institute in a report titled Emerging Trends in Real Estate 2021. It shows that a survey of more than 1,300 lenders, investors, developers, and other national real estate experts found Portland the third most desirable real estate market in the nation in 2017. For 2021, it's now ranking at 66th out of 80 cities on that list. Some odds and ends, Biden... uh, President Biden is threatening sanctions against Burma following a military coup, and 74% of American teens and young adults embrace moral relativism. SpaceX announced its first spaceflight manned solely by uh, civilians. And this day in history, 1653, New Amsterdam, now New York City, was incorporated. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan pressed his case for additional aid to the Nicaraguan Contras a day ahead of a vote by the U.S. House of Representatives. The three major broadcast TV networks, they simply declined to carry the speech, which was covered by CNN. The divided House voted to reject his request for $36.2 million in new aid. 2006, House Republicans elected John Boehner of Ohio as their new majority leader to replace the indicted Tom DeLay. It seems like such ancient history. That was 2006. And one year ago, the Philippines reported that a 44-year-old Chinese man from Wuhan had died in Manila in a hospital from a new coronavirus. It was the first death from the virus to be recorded outside of China. The United States recorded its ninth known case, a woman in the San Francisco area who recently traveled to Wuhan. And quarterback Patrick Mahomes led the Kansas City Chiefs to three touchdowns over the final six minutes, 13 seconds, to lift them to a 31-20 victory over the San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl. I made reference to it a moment ago, but according to a new report from the Barna Group in partnership with Impact 360 Institute, most teenagers and most young adults subscribe to the philosophy of moral relativism relativism, rather, believing that many religions can lead to eternal life. How many are exposed to the scriptures? How many understand what the Bible teaches? How many have simply jettisoned the faith of their youth? Well, the results found 65% of Americans ages 13 to 21 believe many religions can lead to eternal life. That's a 7% increase since 2018. Well, researchers also found that 74% of that age group at least somewhat agreed with the idea that what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. 31% of respondents strongly agreed with that statement, a jump of six percentage points. That means literally moral relativity, moral truth shifts as society shifts, impacts director of cultural engagement points out that will have devastating consequences for everyone trying to live according to God's good design and flourish as he designed them to function in this world as image bearers. 
Well, organizations like Barna have been documenting the American culture slide away from belief in objective truth and morality, which is taught in the scriptures over the course of several decades. The simple fact of the matter is moral relativism hasn't just crept into the worldview of Generation Z. It's now the majority. We've got our work cut out for us. Thankfully, we don't go it alone. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. Tom Halliday coming up next, putting it together again when it's all fallen apart. Seven principles for rebuilding your life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Life can turn on a dime. A failed relationship, a lost job, or a financial crisis can change life in an instant. Well, Saddleback Church's senior teaching pastor, Tom Holliday, he knows firsthand about life's crises. When a catastrophic flood destroyed not only his home, but also his church, as well as many church members' homes, he knew he needed help, so he went to the scriptures. He found in Nehemiah the insights he needed to thrive despite his circumstances. And now, in his latest book, Putting it together again when it's all fallen apart, he walks readers through the difficult first steps that lead to a fresh start God's way, something everyone needs at one time or another. He examines seven principles to help put one's life back together when everything is coming undone, and each chapter of Putting It Together Again when it all when it's all fallen apart coincides with uh, My First Steps. It makes the book perfect for individual reading as well as Sunday schools, book clubs, and so on, and includes a small group session tied to a YouTube video study. Uh, with Holiday for um, uh, each of the seven chapters. Well, my guest is Tom Holiday. Again, he's a senior teaching pastor at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. His passion in ministry is to help people discover a love of the Bible and an understanding of God's truth that changes the way they live. He also assists Rick Warren in teaching purpose-driven church conferences to Christian leaders all over the world. In addition to his latest book, Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart, he's written The Relationship Principles of Jesus, Love-Powered Parenting, and Foundations, 11 Core Truths to Build Your Life On. He also teaches Drive Time Devotions, a daily 10-minute podcast with more than 26 million downloads. He and his wife uh, have three children, six grandchildren, and we're delighted that he's here with us today to talk about his latest book, Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart, Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thank you for the invitation. Really appreciate the invitation to well, join you. You are so welcome, and I, I am thrilled that you've written the book, but I'm sorry that you had to go through such deep waters, so to speak, in Literally order to, to do that. Waters, yes, yeah. yes. Well, let's talk about what fell apart in your life that led ultimately to this very well, helpful book. a lot book. has fallen apart over the years, uh, but we first had to start learning things of, about it. It's, it's about 30-plus years ago now, and I've been teaching these principles ever since. It's sort of a life message. You know, I think God gives all of us life messages, and I just feel like we should write them down. Mm-hmm. They may not get published by a publisher, but your family's going to read them. Uh, the rest of maybe uh, the next generations, maybe your great-great-great-grandkids are going to be reading those life messages. And this was one certainly for Shondell and I. So we're in our young 20s, a pastor of a small church up in Northern California, and a levee burst in our town and just destroyed everything, wiped out the mall that was right next to it, swept through the town, and our house was under nine feet of water. Oh, my our goodness. Our church was destroyed. Uh, luckily, or fortunately, uh, the water rose slowly, so no lives were lost, but a lot, a lot of property damage. So I'm having to figure out, Shondell and I are having to figure out how to rebuild, and I'm leading a whole church of people who are trying to figure that out. And I don't, I'm, I'm in my 20s. You know, what am I going to say to them? Mm. So I turned to Scripture and remembered, okay, Nehemiah had to rebuild a wall. 
maybe there's some things in that book that can give us some principles, some learnings for what to do about rebuilding. And it just opened up in a, in a wonderful way for me back then and uh, was a great encouragement, to, first to me and then uh, and then to the church as I shared it with them. And and since then, I've learned it's not just if you have a flood that you need to rebuild. Well, a lot of people need to be rebuild relationships. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think that's the number one thing that has to be rebuilt is relationships. Or maybe rebuild a business or rebuild a ministry or rebuild a life. There's a lot of rebuilding we ought to do in this life before we get to heaven. Well, absolutely. And I think one of the more challenging things is to know where to begin. How do you put one foot in front of the other to move in a direction that will lead ultimately to restoration? How do you start that process? Well, I'm so First, glad you asked, because that's really that's why I wrote the book is for people that don't know where to begin, because I didn't know where to begin. And as I've talked as a pastor, I've been a pastor for over 40 years uh, with people who need to start to rebuild. I, I found that the common feeling people have is, yeah, I know I need to get started on this relationship or this business or whatever it is that needs to be rebuilt. I know I should do it, but I just don't have the energy. And I understand. I mean, they've been working on their relationship. It's fallen apart, and that's just taken all the life, all the hope right out of people sometimes. And so because of that, we just sort of let things slide. And years later, we might look back and think, I wish I'd done something. But at the moment, we just don't have the energy Mm -hmm. to do something. So where do you start? And I think maybe that's where Nehemiah's biggest example was to me back then and now. When you read in the book of Nehemiah, he goes and he sees the wall that's in rubble. And the first three three things the Bible says he does is he mourns and he fasts and he prays. Mourning is expressing your hurt to God. Fasting is focusing your heart on God. And praying is asking for help from God. It begins with mourning. With recognizing, if you're going to rebuild something, it means something's fallen apart. And that means there's something to mourn. The relationship that didn't turn out like you wanted it to, or uh, the house that didn't stay as you wanted it to because it was burned down, or it was flooded, or the business that didn't grow like you wanted it to. And what all of us want, myself included, is just to hope that it had never happened. So we don't mourn the loss of what caused us to have to rebuild. And because of that, we can't look past that loss. We get stuck in the loss. And we never even begin to rebuild. So that's the starting place is the just honest confession to mourn. Now, if I can say a little bit more about that, the problem with that is we're not very good at mourning. Or I can say it for myself, at least. I'm American and I'm a man. And those are two reasons I'm terrible at, at mourning. I want to just go back to work until the feeling goes away. And so I've had to learn an awful lot about it. I still got a lot to learn about mourning, honestly. Uh, and as I... As I looked through the Bible to learn some lessons about it, I found a lot of lessons in the Old Testament where you find people mourning for a week, a month, six months, sometimes a year. They took longer than we usually take. And you find the way that people mourn, we have this phrase from the Old Testament, they mourn in sackcloth and ashes. Well, we don't do that. We want to pretend that everything is okay. We're not going to let anybody know we're hurting on the inside, but they let everybody know. I think they got the healthier kind of mourning. So what I learned is mourning, we mourn too fast and we want to mourn too pretty. It's going to take mm-hmm. longer. It's going to be a little bit uglier than you want it to be. But guess what? On the other side of that, all of a sudden, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. All of a sudden, Jesus' comfort begins to give you a new strength for living. 
You list in the book, putting it together again when it's all fallen apart, seven principles to put it together again when it's uh, when it's fallen apart. Let's talk about uh, what those principles are. And are they in order of how they should be taken? Or are these uh, can these be applied in random order? Well, the, the broad order is you got to get started. You got to have the energy to keep going. And then you got to know what to do to make it last once it's been rebuilt. And those seven principles really fall into that broad order. So we talked about getting started. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to, uh, first of all, mourn and fast and pray. But then also, at some point, somebody has to initiate. Somebody, If a relationship is going to get rebuilt, there has to be somebody who says, I believe that maybe this relationship could work. Unless somebody says that, the relationship will just slide into um, non-communication. And eventually, if it's a marriage, a divorce, or if it's with one of your kids, years, you go by years and you haven't talked to each other. So there's this moment when somebody has the courage to stand up and say, I believe something could happen here. And that's, some, that's one of the greatest courageous steps that any of us can take. Because you know the other person might reject you if it's about a relationship. Or you know you might fail if it's about something, a business or a ministry you're trying to rebuild. But you have the courage to say, I'm going to step back into it again. It's a lot easier to think something new is going to happen, but sometimes we forget the beauty of what God's already done and what he wants to rebuild. So that, that's the getting started part, is, is you have to have that person who takes the step, who initiates things. And then once you start to rebuild, and then you've got to have the energy to keep going. I mean, we all have rebuilding as a great idea, but how do you have the energy? And there's a lot of different ideas in the book, but one of the most significant ones to me and the place I've found energy many, many times in my life is through the two simple words, thank you. Mm. There, there's something empowering about telling other people along the way that you're grateful for them. We need to express our gratefulness to God, obviously. We also need to express our gratefulness to other people. And one of the reasons we lose energy is we get so focused on ourselves and our task and what we want to get done. We don't tell people around you, around us thank you for what they are doing for us. And so taking the time to do that, if you're feeling a loss of energy right now, then saying thank you to somebody, giving them a word of encouragement can make a huge difference. Uh, one of the one little uh, tricks I've learned about that in, in my life through difficulties, through times of discouragement, is that when I'm feeling discouraged because no one's telling me thank you, there's probably somebody else out there who, who's feeling the same way. So instead of sitting there feeling sorry for myself, if I'll find somebody and I'll thank them, it all of a sudden turns the whole thing around. And I've taken what was discouraging to me and I've used it to, to encourage somebody else, and that'll multiply in, in very, very powerful ways. Now, we're going to need to take a break, but I want you to continue when we return. Again, we're talking about the book, Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart. Tom Holliday is my guest. And the book offers seven principles for rebuilding your life, whether or not we're talking about the physical rebuilding of a structure that has been damaged or relationships, uh, whatever that rebuilding might uh, might mean to you. There are principles in this book to help you along the way, uh, particularly in getting started and having the energy to progress. So we'll continue in just a few moments. You're listening to The George Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking with Tom Holliday. He is the author of Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. He is a senior teaching pastor at 
I've just gone blank, at uh, Saddleback Church, and we're just delighted to have him with us to talk about his latest book on how to move forward when things have uh, have fallen apart. Now, before the break, we were talking about a couple of the uh, the principles that help us to move forward, to rebuild. Um, let's pick up where we left off. You uh, were speaking about appreciating others. Where do we go from there? Yeah. Well, first, let me say, Georgine, you are so uh, kind to just let me talk. I'm obviously a teacher. I've got something to say about this. <laughs> Interrupt me at any time, please, <laughs> with the clarification. I, uh, I, I think uh, finding that energy to keep on going is extremely important. And part of finding it is realizing you're going to have opposition to any rebuilding project. Anytime you say, I'm going to step forward, and I'm not going to just stay where I am, but I'm going to rebuild uh, – People will try to cut you down. You know, in uh, Australia, they call it the tall poppy syndrome. Anybody who raises their head above others and says, I think maybe God can do something here, people want to sometimes cut you down. Hmm. And when you look at at Nehemiah, the, the first thing that he faced is often the first thing that we face, and it surprises us. First thing that he faced was ridicule. He had these enemies that came in, and they just ridiculed them that they could never get that done. And the same thing happens to us. We say, I think I might want to rebuild this relationship. And people ridicule you for it, like that could work. And oftentimes they, they couch it in humor. You know, we say, I'm going to uh, rebuild my career. And they say, what career? Flipping hamburgers. And they laugh like it's supposed to be funny, but it's not funny. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of uh, sarcasm in our culture. And that sarcasm sometimes comes out in the negative things people say in those moments. It might be because they're hurt. Usually it's because they're hurt. They tried to rebuild something that didn't happen, or they had hopes for their lives that didn't come about. And so it's very easy to ridicule you. It's easy to throw stones at somebody else. It's very hard to be the one who's out in front, who is leading the way to say that something's going to be rebuilt. So don't be surprised if that happens when you start to rebuild a ministry or a relationship or even a home. People will say, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just give up and, and, and walk away? Well, because you had value in that home. And certainly you had value in that relationship or in that, that ministry it's worth doing. So that's one of the keys, I think, is realizing you're going to face some opposition. Yeah, and to expect that, not to be surprised by it, to be prepared for it is a, a great way to continue to move forward. You also yeah. write, write about building on success. As you're, as you're progressing, there will be some success. How do we build on that in a way that... So you, you, come, you come to a place where you know, uh, Nehemiah, eventually they built the wall. But if you look at the book of Nehemiah, they finished building the wall one-third of the way through the book. So there's two-thirds of Nehemiah left that are about how he kept it built, what he did about it, that it when it was built. Because once they built the wall, nobody was living in the city. So why have a wall with nobody living in the city? Once they built the wall, nobody was tending the gates and the doors in order to make sure that it was safe. So he had a lot to do to secure his investment and make sure things that moved, moved ahead and one one of the keys to uh, to doing that is to realize that the successes that God gives in life, and God's been talking to me a lot about this recently, they're not a pinnacle to stand on. They're a foundation to build on. They're a stewardship, just like everything else in our lives. So you don't take the success and put it up there on the shelf and look at it, and it tarnishes pretty quick up there anyway. You realize if God gave you a success in parenting, it's not so you can feel morally superior to everybody who's struggling as a parent. He did that as some kind of a foundation in life. You've got something to share with somebody else, so you build on that in a way. Uh, and that's a way some people I know listening right now, they're older, and they feel like, you know, I've, I've had a lot of successes in life, and it's sort of over. No, you know, God, God has some ways for you to still build. Even those of you listening right now who feel like, I can't do anything, you can pray. 
And the things that you learned, you can pray in ways that other people can't pray because you know what to pray for. You know exactly what barriers to pray out of the way. You know exactly what encouragement needs to be placed into that person's life. And God will specifically answer those prayers. I think one of the greatest ways, actually, that we build on successes in life is in the ways that we learn to pray for other people. You write that celebration is an important part of of sustaining the joy of a project completed. Well, yeah. I mean, I think most people, when you say Book of Nehemiah, what's the most familiar book, verse in the Book of Nehemiah? Uh, I think if we had one, for most of us, it would be, oh, yeah, somewhere in there, that's that verse, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So that's the celebration part. Mm -hmm. It's not my determination that's my strength. It's the joy of the Lord that's my strength. Uh, when When you picture somebody who's going to last, who's determined, sometimes it's this picture of a person with a very grim look on their face. But the truth of the matter is, if you can't celebrate it, you're not going to last because the energy that comes uh, for us to last in life comes out of the celebration that we have. The, 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 the crucial core of celebration is worship. All celebration, even if you're celebrating at a baseball game, you're celebrating at a birthday party, the core of any celebration is worship because God is the one who made us. He's the one who enabled us to have joy. He's the one who enabled us to celebrate. So whether we're celebrating at church or at a baseball game or with our kids or family at a, at a party, we've got to realize that the core of that is worship. So if I'm going to strengthen my celebration, I've got to strengthen my worship. And I don't know about you, I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing that. Uh, every time I feel like I've sort of figured out a little bit about worship, I'm reminded about how far I really am from God mm-hmm. because he's so great. But praise God, he, in his humble love, is able to draw us in and draw us in and grow us through that worship. And that kind of joyful celebration in worship is going to it's going to give you strength that you never realize that you had. Yeah, and it shifts our focus away from us. It shifts our focus to him rightly. And you uh, in the final of the seven, you suggest that we need to dedicate it to God. The thing that has been completed needs to be dedicated to him. Well, well we do. And let me just say something about music as we're talking about that because when we talk about celebration and worship, we forget the power of music. And in, actually, in the first chapter, when I talk about mourning, uh, I give a list of 20 or 30 songs uh, to listen through that talk through the comfort of God and the hurt of God. And I know for myself, when I'm going through a time of mourning, I'm just okay until I sit down and listen to some songs. And that's when the tears start to come. There's something about the music that touches my heart in a way that words couldn't, that logic couldn't, that even reading the scripture sometimes can't. And so the, the power of music in, in everything that we're talking about, but particularly in mourning and in celebration, is huge in our lives. And so if you're uh, wondering how to do this a little bit better, then get yourself the right playlist or ask a friend for the right playlist and just watch what, what God does with that. Yeah. And then at the end, at the end of the story, as you were just asking, there's this, po- this moment of dedication. And uh, what I say is it's, whatever's dedicated to God is what will last. When we think of dedication, we think of determination, but that's not how the Bible talks about dedication. Dedication in the Bible is not how much determination I have when I'm doing it. It's why I'm doing it. It's who I'm doing it for. So you dedicate it to God. So you've rebuilt a family. You want it to last? You dedicate it to God. You've rebuilt a business. You want it to last? You you dedicate it to God. Rebuilt a ministry. Rebuilt whatever in your life. One of the key points is you dedicate it to God, and then you keep regularly rededicating it to Him. Now, throughout the book, you offer short sample prayers. What role and how important is prayer in this process of rebuilding? 
Well, obviously it's vital. I mean, and my mentor in that uh, is Nehemiah. He prays a lot of very strong prayers. And in, in all of his prayers, uh, there's, there's several key themes. One of them is just downright honesty. I mean, if he's mad about what's going on and uh, angry that things aren't working out, he just tells God at the beginning. And I think sometimes the reason we don't feel any power in our prayers is we don't put any power into our prayers. They're so nice, so many of our prayers. You read the prayers of David, read the prayers of Nehemiah, and they're not always nice prayers, but guess what? They work through things in their prayers. Mm-hmm. You look at David, and he'll start at the uh, start of a psalm, and he's mad at everybody, his enemies. By the end, he's saying, God, you're my rock. So in 30 verses, he works it through. Sometimes you and I, in 30 ver- years, we don't work it through because we're not honest with God about it. So he's got this honesty to God, but he's also got an honesty about himself. Uh, he doesn't mind saying, I'm a sinner. And that's why we're struggling right now. And uh, who doesn't struggle with that? Because we all struggle with pride. I like what C.S. Lewis said about that. If anyone wants to be humble, I think the first step is to realize we all struggle with pride. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. And, and knowing you struggle with pride in life and being able to say that to God openly opens the, opens the door to a new kind of power you've never experienced before. Now, as we're wrapping up our conversation, what would you say to the listener who perhaps today um, found that they uh, something is falling apart in their life and needs some encouragement to take that first step or to be energized enough to have a desire to move forward? What encouragement can you offer? I, I'm so glad you had the heart to go back to that person because we've talked about all the principles, but you can't do all those now. So if, if you're at that place right now, I would say to you, you're not alone. First, obviously, God is with you, but there are others that God will bring alongside of you to walk through this with you. And you don't have to do it all today. You have to do what we talked about at the beginning. Just start by mourning and fasting and praying. By the way, fasting, we always think of food. Fasting, to focus your heart on God, for most of us, is probably a fast from entertainment, because that's what takes a lot of our time. Mm -hmm. And if we fasted from entertainment, just turned off the radio, maybe. I shouldn't say that on a radio show. (laughs) But just turned off the radio for a week in the car and just let God speak to you there. That focuses your heart in a different way. So you fast and then you pray. You say, God, I'm not going to do this without your help. Just start there and let God start to rebuild your soul, restore your soul. And I would say, if you're turning off the radio for the purpose of seeking God, I'm all for it. So, That's right. so you're I on the right track. <laughs> right track. Hey, thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you very really much appreciate for the invitation. It. Again, uh, Tom Holliday is uh, one of the senior teaching pastors at Saddleback Church. His book is titled Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart. The book is published by Zondervan. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.